Sorry, I'm making sure I'm, I'm set up to record this. Uh, we're in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, then we have several scattered around. There's some on the back uh, bar back there. There's some over here. Grab one. If you don't feel comfortable getting up and grabbing one, somebody else will be happy to grab one for you. We're on page 652, 652, if you're in one of those Bibles. If you're in your own Bible, that's not going to help you, probably. Um, but we're in the middle of Hebrews, and I keep giving, I'm not going to give a, an extensive recap here, but I keep giving a little, I guess, disclaimer right at the beginning. The people who are here every week get tired of this, I'm sure. But if you haven't been here before, then I'll just let you know that Hebrews, Hebrews is densely packed, and it is built on itself. It's, it's cumulative in nature. So as you move through Hebrews, he keeps referencing back to points that he's previously made, and he says, since that's the case, let's do this. Since that's the case, this is also the case. So it's, 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 it, it might be difficult this morning if you're coming in and, you're, and, and we're talking about a lot of concepts that I'm not going to explain in their entirety because this section is not so much all about explanation as it is about trying to get us to do something in reaction to the things that we've just talked about. So let's just read... We're starting in verse 19, and we're going to go through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this passage marks for us a return to, uh, an, to exhortation. Uh, within the book of Hebrews. We've noticed in our study of Hebrews how the author has been going back and forth. Uh, he spends a lot of time building a case for something, and then he'll say, since that's the case, here's how, here's how we need to respond. So it's really helpful in that way that, that he, he actually tells us, here's your application. Here's what you need to do with this information. So this, this is the first section we've been in that's uh, exhortation in a little while, because uh, I think the last one was in chapter 6 or something like that, and 7 and 8 and 9. You know, we've built applications into those, and we've talked about, you know, what those mean. But this is the first time, where we're get, or first time in a while where we're getting back into Hebrews, and he's saying, okay, all that stuff that I just talked about, here's what you need to do about it. Um, and, and these, you know, when you're, when you're preaching these, these are kind of nice because it's just, he packages it up really nicely and says, here it is. This is what you need to know. Um, so I'm hoping that it's, it's clear to us what is here because he, even though there's a lot of dense stuff that he talks about, and a lot of this stuff sounds weird, especially if you're not familiar with like old Testament, um, and, and priests and, and sacrifices and the work of Christ and all that, um, he kind of condenses it. He goes back and he's going to summarize what this is. So he spent a lot of time building upon the concept of Jesus as our high priest, um, of a new order, the order of Melchizedek. And, and Christ ushers in a new and better 
covenant by offering himself once for all to both reconcile us to God and to transform us into new people who have been purified by his blood. That's kind of the summary statement of everything that we've just talked about. Um, So, let's see what all that means for us by kind of breaking this down. Uh, I wanted really badly to have like stuff on the screen to help us take notes and to help us see some of these things. Um, hopefully it's not too complicated um, and, and we can keep up. Uh, if you need time, if you're, like, you're taking notes, and I hope you are, then, uh, then just let me know if you need me to repeat something or something like that. So the structure, let's just look at the structure of this. It's pretty straightforward. Um, It's easy to break it down. The author is saying that since the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, we ought to respond to it in a number of ways. So here's how we break it down. Since, one, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's verse 20, sorry, 19. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then... We need to respond in three ways, at least within this passage in particular. He's, he's calling us to respond in three ways. First, draw near with a true heart and full assurance, assurance of faith. Two, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And three, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, uh, meeting together, encouraging one another. So the, the first thing that I want to point out here is just that All the exhortations that we're about to discuss are built upon the rock-solid testimony of God. Um, The past several chapters have presented these things in in detail, and, and and, and it's shown us how he's accomplished these things. Um, And we, we have to become so invested in those truths that they would cause us to, to do something with them. Um, a lot of people tend to have knowledge. And I mean, this, I would say this is me for a good chunk of my life inside of church. A lot of people have knowledge, like they hear the message, they hear the gospel, but they don't have any kind of, they don't have faith in it and they don't have any zeal that moves them to do anything about it. And they come to church all the time, and, and maybe this is us, we, we hear the gospel preach, but nothing ever changes in our hearts. And, and though we have knowledge, like we're building up all this information, it doesn't make a difference in us. That's not what, what we need to do with this information. Other people, they might have a lot of enthusiasm. Um, but it's not informed by any kind of real knowledge, and it's not guiding them in any kind of real direction. Some people get really excited to get involved in something like this, to be a part of something, and to work hard, and to make a difference, but they're, they're doing all those things for the wrong reasons. And so they're ignorant at best, and rebellious at worst. The author of Hebrews makes the case that we need to be mature in our knowledge of the word of God. He said that back in chapter 6. He started off by saying, we need to move on to maturity. So he reasons that becoming knowledgeable about those things then ought to produce a change in us. So, so here it is. Let's just break these things down then. 
since we have a great confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, first, we are supposed to, in response to those things, draw near to God. Uh, and this is not the first time that he has, he has used this kind of language, drawing near to God. You can actually see it multiple times. One that I'm going to point out in particular is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. So you can look back there. Um, we talked about this at the time. But it's just good to, to kind of get the gist of the whole book and to see its, its sweep and, and its motion. Verse 14 in chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So not only should... If we go back and look at this also, not only should we draw near, we should draw near how? With confidence. How in the world can that, how in the world can that be the case? How can we, or how should we, draw near to the presence of God with confidence? If we know ourselves, if you've read the Bible and you've read the law and you've read what God expects of us, then the more you learn, the more you realize that, that we're, we're sinful people. We are broken people. And, and the more you study books like Leviticus and, and the Old Testament, the more you realize that, that God is, is most often described as holy, which means that he, he separates himself from all that is unrighteous, all that is not Good And not only is he separated from unrighteousness, he condemns unrighteousness. So how, how is it that we are able to draw near to God in our, in our current state? We're condemned, right? We were. But Christ came and took our guilt. And that's what we've been talking about the past several weeks. He came and took our guilt and he received the punishment that we deserved being condemned people, and then he overcame death by his own righteousness, and he's now taken up residence in us. So now we can stand in front of God, and we can do so confidently, because our confidence is in Christ's work, not our own work. So we can say, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, we can say like Paul, not this Paul, welcome back by the way, like Paul in Acts 23, verse 1, we talked about this before, and we preached on this a long time ago back in Acts, how he was able to stand in front of the high priest of Israel, and he was able to say, Sirs, I've lived my entire life up to this day with a clear conscience. How in the world can a murderer say that? How in the world can, can a religious extremist that goes off and kills men for their, 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 their differences in belief, how can he walk up and say, my conscience is absolutely clear up to this day. It's not bragging about us. It's, it's bragging about Christ and the fact that his, his sacrifice and what he did was so effective that we can come in front of God now. Not only, not only just can we, but we come in with confidence 
That's, that's incredible. That's incredible. And if it's not, maybe we don't realize how bad we are. We've been cleansed both from the sins that we committed and the sins that have been committed against us. So there's no more uncleanliness in us if we are in Christ. So, we, we approach the throne in confidence knowing that Christ also, if we look back in, in chapter 4 there, he, he sympathizes with us. He sympathizes with our, our weaknesses and he's able to come alongside us and to offer us mercy and help because he became one of us. He became a person. And, and he suffered as one of us, as a human being. And he put, himself, he put himself in our shoes and walked alongside us, but he did, it, he did it better. He did what we couldn't do. So, so he, he's able to have compassion on us. And we see that as you, as you read the Gospels. We just got done reading Luke, which, which emphasized Christ's compassion towards people. Even the lowliest of people, Luke's Gospel in particular, points that out, how he had compassion towards people. That same compassion that you see in the Gospels, he, he has for us. And so if we come in that same spirit with Christ and we draw near to God, then it's not like he's sitting here with his arms crossed and... And just kind of like shaking his head, like, what do you want now? Like, he has compassion on us. And he sees how in need of him we are. And if we draw near to him, then he's not going to do anything but love you. Like the prodigal son, also in Luke. He comes up to his father, and what does the father do? He embraces him. He celebrates the fact that he's there. So we have confidence because we have faith in what Christ has done. And we also have... um, a mediator, somebody who who actually cares for us. So he has compassion on us and he loves us. And because of these two things, we draw near. But how do we draw near? Like in a practical sense. How how do you draw near to God? If if you're going to leave this this building today and say, well, I guess I need to draw near to God. How, how, what does that mean? How does that work? Um, it can't be done in a physical sense, you know, at least not while we're here on earth. Google Maps will get you a lot of places, but if you type in the throne of God, and I did a little test, <laughs> it does not take you to like a physical location. Actually, it was kind of cool because some churches popped up, and actually Christian churches, so I was like, hmm, that's kind of neat. But, but that's not actually going to get you like in the presence of God. If you, if you come here, if you go to one of those churches, you might be d- dissatisfied, disappointed to realize that you're, you're not going to be done. Like you're not, that's not it. Um, however, though we can't approach in a, in a physical sense the throne of God, we have to do it in a spiritual sense. By drawing near to Christ through the Holy Spirit who makes us one with Him, one with Christ. The Spirit makes us one with Christ. So as we draw near to Christ, we're actually drawing near to God the Father. Last week we read uh, Ephesians uh, 2, 4 through 8, and it's kind of cool because 
we can pick right up where we left off, or actually 4 through 10. Um, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, if you're using one of the other Bibles. Sorry, I didn't take a note. Somebody will be happy to help you, if you can't find it. Ephesians 2, verse 11. And I'm going to read through 22, because I think that this is pretty cool, what, what is said here. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This language sounds really similar. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we have both... Uh, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, the Spirit. Uh, obviously, these, these verses could easily be their own sermon, but we'll have to be content with being overwhelmed. Uh, we who were once far off are now being brought near to God because of the reconciliation that is offered to us in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 18 again. For through him, we both have access in one Spirit. Jesus is the hymn. Jesus gives us access to the Father in the Holy Spirit. Also, look again at verse 22. We are becoming the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, how could you here draw more closely to God than that? Like that I think that, that this is kind of in a practical sense, this is, this is what happens to us. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, conforms us into the likeness of Christ, and then as Christ was able to say, I, I'm a temple of God, we likewise are told that our bodies are temples of, the, of God, having the Spirit in us. So nurturing that is how I think we can act if we can act at all, to draw near to God. Turn to John 17. If you need these references or these notes afterwards, then let me know, because there's a lot here this week. John 17, verse 11. Verse 11. 
Jesus is praying to God the Father. He's just talked to the disciples about uh, pretty much everything that they need to know before he goes and becomes crucified and dies and resurrects and then goes to see God. Uh, he's, he's given them like a final teaching. And John, the past couple chapters before 17, just kind of describe all that. And he talks about it a lot. But here he's praying to God, Jesus praying to God. And he says in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they might be one, even as we are one. This is pretty encouraging. Jesus is praying for you. And um, later on in that chapter, he goes into detail. Like, we don't just think, oh, he's probably praying for us. He specifically says he's praying for future disciples later on in that chapter. So he's praying for us, and he's praying to God, and he's saying, God, please make them one even as we are one. That verse by itself, like, you, we can't, you can't even approach everything that that means. And I've, I've used that, you know, in a lot of different senses. It can be said in a lot of different senses. But, but here, I think that it, it can communicate to us that we are to be one as Jesus and the Father are one. We, we are to be near to them in some sort of sense the way they are near to each other. Turn back, if you have to, to uh, John 16. 13, uh, verse 13 and 14. We're kind of backtracking here, but it's good. Verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, the Holy Spirit works to sanctify us. I'm wondering if I skipped something that I meant to say. I'll just have to skip it. Uh, I was going to point out another verse, but it's okay. Okay, the Holy Spirit works in us then with the truth of God to, to sanctify us and to make us one with Christ. So he is specifically working in us to sanctify us. There was another verse, it's right in here, and I don't have time to hunt for it, um, that talks about how the Holy Spirit is going to work to sanctify us to him. I can post it on the city later. So he does this by imparting the truth of the word of God in us and activating in our hearts and minds so the, these truths, so that we may be faithful to do the will of God. So we approach the throne by becoming more and more like Christ, which is accomplished in us by the Holy Spirit, who reveals the truth of God's word to us. The most practical thing then maybe that we could do is to saturate yourself with the truth of the word of God and to pray to the Holy Spirit that he would make it living and active inside of you in order to make you one with Christ, more like Christ. And, and in doing so, he will make you draw closer to God. And that's what, that's, 
That's consistent with what we've seen in Hebrews because he's been saying over and over and over, even since Paul was preaching, don't neglect Jesus. Don't forget him. Consider Jesus. Focus on Jesus. So the truth that... Uh, of, of the gospel, the truth of what Christ has done moves us to draw near to God. The next thing, hold fast the confession. I really don't want to skimp on, on any of these points, but if I have to choose one for the sake of time, it's going to be this one, because uh, we've discussed that, this quite a bit, I think, because he's used this language, hold fast the confession. We've, we've said this a lot, I think. Uh, again, this isn't the first time it's come up. Uh, in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, again, you can see how he uses that language. I've got to get back to Hebrews. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So again, remember, remember, remember. <laughs> Um, if there's one thing that I really want to kind of put emphasis on with regard to this, holding fast the confession, it's, it's the last part of that exhortation. Turn back to Hebrews 10. Um, 23, verse 23, where he mentions this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Back in chapter 6, uh, we, we talked about the promises of God. Uh, chapter 6, if you want to read more about this, chapter 6, verse 13 through 20, he talks about the certainty of God's promise. And I kind of cheated because that's the little heading over top of that section. But he's talking about how, he, how he, God made a promise to Abraham and he's going to bring it about to completion. Why? Because he put, in a sense, his own reputation. Like, God staked his own reputation on the, he put it on the line by swearing an oath that he's going to bring about everything that he has promised. And he doesn't change and he doesn't lie. Even though we as people are fickle, as fickle as it gets, he remembers and he stays faithful to us because he promised who? Himself? That he would. So that ought to give us great confidence in that confession. The, the church that this is addressed to, they're struggling uh, in Hebrews. Uh, the, the audience for this letter, uh, a lot of people think that they are undergo, the church is beginning to undergo persecution. The Jews at this time in the first century are, the church, the church is growing, and the opposition as that church grows is growing against them. And, and the government and the Jewish religious authorities are, just continue to attack the Christian church. So the reason, one of the reasons that he, the author of Hebrews, keeps going on and saying, hold fast, hold on, be encouraged, don't let go of these things, is because they are, they are enduring hardship. So these aren't, these aren't promises that will just get you through a day that, that you're... You're already in a good mood. These are things that are going to endure in the hardest of times. The Christians that are in Iraq right now are having to hold on to these things because 
It's, it's their livelihood, not their physical livelihood. It's their hope for everything that matters because everything else has been taken away from them. And this is a similar situation where they are physically being beaten down, but the author is saying, listen, you can, you can bank on this because it's, it's been running. It's a, it's a promise that God made thousands of years ago, and he hasn't forgotten it, even though we hated God. Even though after he made the promise to us, we said, whatever, get out of my life. Because that's what the that's what Israelites did. They just kept running away from God. But he said, I'm coming after you anyway. We're reading Hosea on Sunday nights. How much of a picture of this is Hosea's life? Where God says to Hosea, Hosea being a prophet in the Old Testament, he says, I want you to go marry a prostitute to demonstrate this broken relationship. The fact that I keep coming after you and I keep saying you are mine and I love you and you keep running away to other people and in spite of all that, God is faithful and he holds on and and he doesn't give up and he doesn't change and he's saying, Hosea, that relationship, I, I want you to stay in that marriage because that is a way to show you you. And people for thousands of years afterwards, we're reading about about it, how much God loves us and how much he's going to honor the covenant that he's entered into with us. Though we might not think anything of it, though we might think it's garbage sometimes, he, he presses into us and he is faithful. So no matter how broken we are, we can still... Come to him in confidence and come to him in brokenness and he is going to respond with love for us. That is amazing. Last thing. And I say last thing, but this is like, this is the thing I wanted to spend most of my time on. Uh, I don't think it's going to take too long, but um, we, have, we have talked about this a lot. Uh, if you've been in community groups with us for a little while, especially in my community group, um, I have brought up this verse so many times. People are probably tired of me mentioning this verse. They probably think, is he putting a little bit too much into this verse? Um, we've looked at this, this last thing, uh, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. To me, this one's particularly interesting, and I'm going to try to be fair. Like I, I, for whatever reason, probably just because we started this church, I have like an affection for this verse because I want to see people all in. Paul preached about this. Are we all in? Are we, are we doing this? And, and as elders, we want to see people all in, but I, I don't want to overstate this, and I don't think that we do, but I want to try to look at this text just as it is and say, okay, what, what is this saying? So to me, this, this last one is particularly interesting because it adds a little bit of detail to what we've already been told in Hebrews. This, this is just like the rest of these exhortations, this It's not the first time that this has come up. He has said something to this effect 
before. You can see where the author's given them this exhortation previously if you turn back to Hebrews 3, uh, verses 12 and 13. And it's pretty brief, but it's still meaningful. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we've talked about this. We've also talked about... um, or at least I, I remember specifically noting how in chapter uh, 6, verse 1, he, he criticizes his audience. Um, he criticizes his audience's lack of knowledge. And he exhorts them by saying, let us go on to maturity. Is the author immature? Is he saying, we're all immature? No, he's pointing to them. He's saying, you guys have not grown into maturity with this knowledge. And he calls them dull. You are dull of hearing. Which is one of the more like, blunt criticisms that he's given in this, in this book. He says, you're dull. But you don't have to be. Let us go on to maturity. He doesn't keep pointing the finger and say, and I said this before, he doesn't say, I'm going to come back in a year and you better get this straightened up. He says, we as a church need to move on to maturity. We wouldn't consider the author immature, especially since he's able to point out their weaknesses, right? Uh, To bring them in love. He's criticizing them in love, hoping that they're going to be raised up. So he, he himself is not immature. However, rather than pointing the finger, he, he emphasizes how they, he included, they all need to move on to maturity together as a church. The author, throughout this book of Hebrews, is concerned for the church at large. He continually uses languages, language like we, us, let's do this. He's not... He's not leaving anybody behind. He's saying, we as a church need to live a certain way. So this is not, this is not new to Hebrews. We'll get into a little bit more details of how maybe it expands a little bit here. Uh, but first, notice why he's making this exhortation to the church. And you see a little bit of this when you look at chapter 3. Uh, he is, he's doing the same thing in chapter 10 that he did in chapter 3. Um, he's concerned that his audience will be tempted to fall away from God. So he says that they ought to have each other's backs, like they ought to be looking out for one another. And they need to be loving one another, doing things for one another, sharpening each other. And this same exhortation applies to us here at CRC. And we ought to examine ourselves. I know that we've been talking about this recently. We consider community a strength at our church. At least in times past, we have. Um, But we shouldn't allow ourselves to become proud about that or ever feel like we have earned a permanent status of being in real Christian community. 
we need to make sure that, that we're adhering to these commands at all times. And you see that the kind of language that he uses, it's like a day-by-day sort of thing. It's never done as long as you're here. We talked about Christ's sacrifice, and, the, and he said, in the Old Testament, they kept giving sacrifices, and that let you know that the work was never done. The sacrifice was never fully effectual because it had to keep being offered every day, every year. But when Christ came, he did it once and it was done. Christ's work is done, but for us, he's saying daily, encourage each other every day. So you can't say, we were like this once. We did a really good job with community. Remember that one night where we shared our testimonies and things were just like the Holy Spirit was there and we encouraged one another. People were crying and, and things were awesome. That was yesterday. I don't want to diminish that at all because that's the Holy Spirit sanctifying us. But it's never done. It's done daily. So this is something we have to keep striving towards. It's, it's not something that I think that we ought to ever rest on and say, yeah, we've, we've got that. Because it's something that, it's today. So when we examine ourselves then here, let's, let's do this. Let's examine ourselves. What's, what's, what ought to be the point of our gathering together? When we, as the church, come together in the name of Christ, what should be the purpose? Certainly many things. You could say a lot about that. But... It has to be more than fellowship, more than gathering together for the sake of gathering together, more than friendship, more than positive feelings or emotional affirmations, more than us. Our coming together, according to this, ought to be saturated with the truth of the gospel. With love for one another. And, and with a desire that the church be moved by the Holy Spirit to be more and more like Christ every day. We need, we, CRC, we need to be a church that is about more than us. Because the reason we exist is Christ. So notice, notice and invest yourself, invest yourself in this idea. We are being commanded to come together to be the church because of what Christ has done as a way of drawing near to God. We are being commanded to come together to be the church because of what Christ has done as a way of drawing near to God. A lot of people are critical of the Christian church and they even question its relevance or its necessity. And I'm not talking about people outside of the church. You know, the world can say whatever they want about us. Absolutely. Because they're not of us. What more do you expect of them? So I don't care what anybody else says that's outside of here. Because they don't, they don't claim these things. They don't know these things. They don't bank on Jesus. So why would they say anything good about us? I don't care what they have to say. But a lot of people who claim to be in the church are critical of the church. 
and they question its relevance and its necessity, and they question whether or not it's okay for them to go and, and do it alone. And, and a lot of people make arguments. Within the past year, I've read, like, there have been big, big controversial articles online that have caused a stir where people have said, the church is very old. The world has changed. We can do this differently. Maybe we ought to do it differently. And, and yes, the context changes. Obviously, the songs we sang this morning are not probably the songs that Jesus sang. Um, and, and he didn't meet in a place like this, and he didn't drive to church. And, and like a lot of little things have changed. He didn't use Google Maps to look up the throne of God and figure out where it was. Um, the context changes, but the truth of the matter doesn't. There are a lot of things that I think we ought to get from these verses. There are a lot of things that I want you to get from this sermon. But one of the big things that, I, that I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would impart in us is a love for the church. A love for the church. The kind of love that it's talking about here. Some of us may have a broken understanding of what the church really is in its essence. And maybe that is why you see things broken. Maybe that's why you criticize it so much. Let me clear some things up. Just in case you've come from a certain way of thinking about things. The church is not a building. We meet here, but this is where the church comes. Like any, any church that is out in the world, they're not, they're not defined by the place where they are as much as the people that are in it. The church is not a building. The church is not a social club. The church is not a political party. Good God. <laughs> in this area in particular. The church is not a political party. The church is the body and bride of Christ. Why should we love it? You guessed it, I've got three, three points. Um, three reasons why we ought to love the church. One, Christ purchased us at great cost to himself. Let me say that again. Why should we love the church? One, Christ purchased us at great cost to himself. It was not cheap. The fact that we're here, even though we're in a cheap building, and, and there's nothing fancy about the way we do this, the fact that we gather here was, is not something that is done cheaply, something that is done flippantly. It cost a lot. And I try to remember this every week, because every time I get up here, I'm saying, God, thank you for letting us be here. Thank you for letting us be here. As in, thank you for letting us be a church. Because this didn't just happen. Like, we didn't just show up and say, hey, I've got a good idea, fellas. This was purchased. Jesus 
God incarnate in the flesh had to come and live for 33 some odd years a perfect life, laid his life down, let himself die to purchase this. And so that is one reason why we ought to love the church. Two, Christ makes the church one with himself by the Holy Spirit. With him as the head and us as the body. I could, we could go on and on. 1 Corinthians 12, I think it is. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about, and go read it if you need some, some explanation of that point. I'll say it again. Christ makes the church one with himself by the Holy Spirit. With him as the head, Jesus is the head, and us as his body. And yeah, that's metaphorical language, but it's meant to, it's meant to illustrate truths for us. 1 Corinthians 12. You could read that whole chapter because that's what it's about. When we talk about being, when you read our membership covenant, and it makes reference to being members of the body of Christ, members of this church, that we reference that. So we think that the membership is a big deal, and, and Christ works through his body. Like, try to really soak that in. Like, you've become a part of Christ, in a way, a part of who he is by being in the church. Other language in Corinthians talks about don't be, don't be associated with sexual immorality. Because in so doing, you're joining the body of Christ with a prostitute. He uses languages like that, language like that, really serious language to say that you, you, don't you see that you are, you are a part of Christ as the church? And so why should we love the church? Because we're a part of Christ. He is over us. And as the body, this is point three, Christ works through us, through his body, the church, to accomplish his will on earth. You could say a lot about that too. Um, the way that God brings people to himself in the world is through the church. We talk about being on mission. Romans 10 talks about how is any God, anybody going to put faith in Christ unless they've heard? And how are they going to hear unless somebody tells them that knows? The people who are in the church have to get out there and tell them. So... As his body, the, way, the only way that we're going to be effective is if we are a part of that body to accomplish Christ's will in the world. So you think that you can go off by yourself and say, I'm being the church right here. I am the church. Well, you can be a member of the church, but if you're not in a real sense with the church in the kind of physical way that he's talking about here, gather together then are you really being in the church? Are you going to accomplish much? Obviously, extenuating circumstances. If you're like a missionary and you're like, I'm the only one out here, are you going to criticize me? No, absolutely not. Because you are out there, that's, that's the same thing that Paul's doing. He's going place to place saying, know Jesus. Become, get close to Jesus. But if you're saying... I've got this one church down the road, but I kind of hate them because they don't play my, my kind of music and my, 
They don't have the kind of decor that I'd really like to see in a church. That, that is not a justifiable excuse. Because we're called to love the church. It says love one another. So for those three reasons, I think Christ purchased us. He makes us one with himself through his body. And he works through us as his body to accomplish his will. So because of all those things, because of those truths, we ought to love the church. Drawing near then requires Christ in us. So we strive to become more like Christ. In the process of becoming more like Christ, we must learn to love what he loves. If you are going to claim to be like Christ, you have to love what Jesus loves. And you have to hate what Jesus hates. So if you're going to love what Jesus loves, love the church. Because Jesus does. In spite of all its flaws. So a couple of things I don't want us to do. If we love the church. I'm going to gear up here with some more water. If we love the church. What is it saying here? Don't neglect to meet together. So. If you love the church, stop neglecting her. I'm using her in the sense of bride of Christ. Uh, If you love the bride of Christ, stop neglecting the bride of Christ. How can you claim to be of Christ? Yeah, I live like Jesus. But you don't care about the church, the thing that he, he died for to purchase. Rather, Give it your attention. Give it your attention. What does that look like? Day in and day out, it's probably going to look different. But the point is, you are making an effort. That's the opposite of neglect. You are making an effort to pay attention to the people in it, to its mission, to what it's, what it's doing. Stop dragging her name through the mud. What I mean is, that kind of what I was talking about a second ago, like the people who, who say, yeah, I'm part of the church, but I hate this church, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't blah, 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 blah. List of, list of reasons why you don't like the church. And I'm not saying in that And I want to be careful. I'm not saying in that that you can't be critical of a church. You can be critical of a church. And you ought to be because I think it's 1 Corinthians 5. It might be 2 Corinthians. I get my Corinthians mixed up all the time. Um, He talks about we ought to judge one another because if we are claiming Christ, then we can't just let sin just run around in the church and be like, wish that would stop. Like, you have to do something about it. So if you see a problem, you can be critical. When I'm saying, stop dragging the church's name through the mud, I'm not talking about loving criticism, because you can lovingly criticize. I'm talking about criticism that's meant to destroy, to tear down, to hurt. And there's a lot of that happening in our culture as as we feel like, you know, we're post-postmodern. 
whatever. Um, and and just, just think about that. Imagine, and this is hyperbole maybe, maybe a little, little too, I don't know, I don't know, whatever. Whatever it is, imagine this. Imagine Jesus is like standing right in front of you and the church is standing next to Jesus. And you walk up, you're like, hey, Jesus, how's it going? Doing pretty good. How have you been? And you just kind of small talk. What's been going on in your life? What are you up to? He says, have you been hanging? Have you been in the church? Like you, you claim to be part of the church. What, what's going on with that? Like what have you been doing with the church? And, and you just start like going off and just insulting the church and talking bad about it and saying how much you don't need it. And Jesus is like, can you imagine? Like he's getting red-faced. Like, who are you? How dare you insult the bride of Christ who, again, he has purchased with his life? How dare you do that? Loving criticism is okay. But we need to speak lovingly of the church and say, like, like God, we're going to read more about Hosea. Talk the way God talks about Hosea. Yeah. She's a whore. But she's been purchased. And she's been made righteous because of what Christ did. And because of that, all that, all that filth is, cl- is cleaned off. And God has said, I'm going to make something of that. So take care of it and invest in it. And same, right along the same line, stop assaulting the church and rather build it up. Rather than being one of those guys that sits back and criticize, why don't you press in and, and you get involved and, and you be a part of that. So that you can't be listed as one of the prostitutes inside of the church who just continually runs away. But rather, you're drawing near to God and you're saying, like the, like the author of Hebrews is saying, he's saying, you know what? We've got problems. You guys are dull. You're immature. You haven't grown. But come on, we can, we can, we can do better. And by we can do better, I mean Christ has done better, expects better of us. And if we sincerely draw near to him, then he's going to draw us near to himself. So you can, you can come alongside and you can say, come on guys, we've got to do this. Don't sit back and be a consumer and be just this critical person, but rather work with the church. So, the church is how mission happens. It's, it's the body by which new members are added and, with, and in which current members are moved, healed, strengthened, and used to great purpose and effect. So we, we love it. We love the church. Right? Since Christ has died, since these things, since verse 19, verse 20, 21, since those things are true, let us love the church. If you don't love the church, then is the love of Christ in you. Because Christians love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves the church.
practically, what does this look like? You could go on for a long time. Um, and again, day by day, it's going to look different. But just make sure that you're paying attention. You're not just like off on your own. You don't know what's going on in the church. You don't know where anybody is in the church. You don't know how, how your brothers and sisters are doing. That are, especially the, those people that are in your community group. Like if they're in there and, and, and maybe they've been gone for a little while and, and everybody's like, how are they? What are they up to? And everybody's like, I don't know. Don't care either. Like, no. Pay, pay attention. And there's a lot of ways to pay attention. Show up. Show up. It says, and this is a detail inside of these verses. He said before, we need to encourage each other. We need to build each other up so that we pay attention to these things. But right there, this is unique inside of this exhortation. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. I, I drilled that home to a lot of people and I almost felt bad. I'm like, is, am I justified in doing this and saying that if you, if you continue to just shirk off the church, then, then you're in trouble? I don't think so. Some people that have, I mean, he's, he's essentially saying, since the gospel is true, do this. And if you're not doing it, what are you doing? You don't have to be in somebody's house every day. <laughs> but, but it does say, kind of like the same way with... Um, I don't know if this, is, if this is fair or not. This kind of just came to mind. Kind of like with communion. Jesus didn't say, do communion every week. And he didn't say, do it every quarter. He, didn't, he just said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This is the same thing. He's, saying, he's not saying, you have to get in somebody else's house every day. You have to do X, Y, and Z. He's saying, you need to do it. And the Holy Spirit is hopefully going to work in you to tell you how you need to go about it. And, and whatever God is convicting, whatever God has laid on your heart, if he's calling you to do something, then you need to be a part of it. You need to gather together. You need to not treat it as though it is something that can just be thrown away. Oh, I'm a little tired this morning. I'm not going to go to church this week. Um, I, I'm not going to... Let the church define my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. And if there's time for the church, then I'll go to church. Like that is, you've got to reorient yourself. Because this is a gospel matter. Like he's saying, since the gospel is true, you do this. There's a lot of practical ways that, that we could talk about. What do, we, what do we need to do? And what do I do in this instance? And, and you know, as we keep living out as the church, we're going to figure this out. And we're going to be broken people. And we're going to keep struggling through this. But the point is... What I want everybody here to get is a love for the church. A love for the church. It's not some other institution. It's something that if you're in Christ, you're a part of. And it's, not, and it's something that was purchased at great cost. And it is a privilege that you don't deserve. You do not deserve to be here. Let's pray.
God, we don't deserve to be here on our own merit, but Christ, Christ brought us near. He has made us into new people. He has put the Holy Spirit in us. And far too often we treat that as though it's not important and as though it's not something that demands our attention, that demands our service, that demands anything from us except just a casual kind of adherence that's there when, only when we want it to be. This, this is of eternal importance. And the only way that we're going to be the church, the only way that we're going to be on mission is to live in, inside of these truths and allow them to shape us. Holy Spirit, I pray, I pray that you would move us with these truths. And I pray that you would cause us to love the church like Jesus loves the church. Cause us, cause us to be the church, to do what we're supposed to do, to encourage one another so that, so that we're standing firm in the gospel, in Christ. Be with us during this time. Break hearts. Uplift those who need to be uplifted. Cause us to see us as we really are. Broken and ugly people who, who can be made perfect by Christ just by putting faith in Him. And by drawing near. Cause us to draw near during this time. And in Jesus' name, amen.